because that's the sense of the sentence. It's a dynamic translation. Unfortunately, in Hebrew, there was also a bit of a play on words going on, and we don't quite pick that up in the English reading. So I'm going to jump back a little bit, if you like, to the King James Version, which takes the opposite rendering, sort of. And one of the things is that what's translated in the NIV as wicked men or worthless men in some other translations is the word Belial. Now, Belial in scripture is often used in that sense of being worthless or wicked. But it's also used somehow in a, as a kind of a proper name. Um, hopefully none of you have read the Satanic Bible, some of the versions that Satan worshippers look at. But if you ever were to look at that, don't. The third of the books, there are four books in the Satanic Bible, and the first one is the book of Satan, the second is the book of Lucifer, and the third is the book of Belial, seen as one of the demons, another name for Satan. And the fourth book is the book of Leviathan. And this first sentence says, Eli's sons were sons of Belial. And that makes a lot more sense to us if we understand that Eli means my God or oh God. So pretty much what it says here is it's setting out this chapter. It says God's sons or the, the sons that come from one who worships God. God's sons are sons of the devil as kind of a heading. Now whilst it talks about Eli's sons being worthless men, wicked men, there's this play on words which is always in the back of the people who are reading this as mine. Because part of what the writer wants to show is this distinction between being children of God and children of the devil and there's really nothing in between. Jesus is very clear about this when he talks to the Pharisees. He says, you're like your father, the devil. Why? Because if they're not a follower of God's, they're a follower of the devil. If they follow their own whims and their own fancies... If they live a life of secularity, they're actually following the one who is against God, the devil. And so overpowering this whole passage is this concept of these people who should have been God's children, living according to the pattern of their father Eli, if you like, or according to their office of priests, were instead by their misuse of that office, by their carnality, by their desire to meet their own needs, not just ignoring God, but following after the evil one himself in their very practices. And you see that as we go through. That's kind of a background to it. You can still see why Daryl and I are going to have to have some words. The first of these is probably this in terms of salvation history. Why did the writer put this in here? He's trying to show why there is this change about to happen in the life of the children of Israel. If you like, there's going to be a change from the old priesthood into a new line. No longer is the focus going to be on the priests and maybe the judges as it was under Eli. But now the focus is going to be through Samuel and that which comes from 
Samuel. And in the book of 1 Samuel, you're going to get to the person of King David. And from his line will be one who will serve God forever, a man after God's own heart. And a part of this description is to say to the people, there was a need for a change. And we got that towards the end of the passage that we read. God said to Eli, I promised your fathers that you would serve me, but you haven't. I promised that you would follow after me, but you haven't. And the covenant that I have with you, there's a fancy theological term for it, it just means it goes both ways. You haven't kept your side of the bargain. The promise that I made with you was incumbent on you living according to my purposes. And you haven't done it. And the people of Israel, as they're reading this, are going to understand that really Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, whatever was happening amongst them, was throughout the whole nation. And God said, I'm going to take it from you and I'm going to give it to someone else. And this will be the sign, your sons will die on the one day, your line will be cut off. Happened again in the time of Jeremiah. Jeremiah in chapter 7 writes to the priests and he says to them, I'm going to do to you what I did at Shiloh. In other words, I'm going to take from you in the same way that I took from Eli because you're not living according to what you're supposed to. And we know in the New Testament that Jesus says the very same things to the Pharisees. That's the place of it in here. Those who were supposed to be God's fail in that and they get taken away and they get removed and God raises up another group of people. God will always raise up those in the world who will do his task and here we have this idea of Samuel coming up. Now notice in Samuel chapter 3 and this is for someone else to talk about next week, Samuel yet did not know the Lord and yet God begins to talk with him to bring him up into the place that God wants him to be. God will raise up those who will do his work in the world. But not only will he do that, which we find is a fantastic blessing, he will also take away those who do not. Application. I think sometimes we feel that God doesn't do this anymore. God no longer responds that way because we now live under a covenant of grace, which is true. We now live in the situation where everybody personally has a faith in Christ Jesus, which is true. But I was reminded this week in the book of Revelation, in chapter 2, where Christ is talking to the church at Ephesus. He makes a a corporate statement to the people living in this place, down in verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Why? Because if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. What's he saying? He's saying to this church which does many great things but has turned its focus away from following God. Maybe not to the 
evil practices of Eli and his sons, but they've taken their eyes off God. And basically he's saying, you no longer follow me. And if you don't follow me, you're not going to be my kids. He's not saying that all of them lose their salvation. That's not what he's talking about at all. What is he saying? He's saying, I'll remove your lampstand. He's saying, you're not going to be my light in the world much longer. I'm going to take it away from you because you're doing damage to me in my name. I'll raise up other people to be lampstands in your place. I'm not quite old enough, but I hear the stories and I'm sort of kind of old enough, believe it or not. You go back to the 40s, 50s, 60s, even here in Australia, and the number of vibrant churches that were there, where a large number of people came together to worship God. We lost our focus. The things that this world brought us in. We wanted more than what God gave us. We wanted to be immoral. And God took away the church from those places. It died out in places. There are churches now which run pancake parlours and uh, Buddhist temples and all sorts of things, even here in Brisbane. Is it just because we drift from God? I don't think so. I think God also says to us, take your eyes off me. You're not following me? Well, I'm going to change things. I'm going to move on. Why? Because I have a purpose that needs to be fulfilled and I will fulfill it. So that's the first thing, salvation history. What's the application for us? Corporately, this is a corporate thing, not individually, but corporately as a group. Let's keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ. I have been terribly encouraged in the time that I've been here in this church as I think on all the things that I see happening and commitment that's in people and the way things are done. And I say this is, in many ways, what church is supposed to be. And this passage is is a reminder to us, don't take your eyes off the ball. Don't get lazy. Don't think we've had it good for this period of time. We've been faithful. We've been committed. This passage is, don't take your eyes off the ball. God will achieve his purposes in and amongst the world and he'll do it through his people and you take your eyes off him and you move aside then maybe he'll give it to someone else. I I weep sometimes at the number of churches which are constantly having to be renewed from outside. We want people to come in from the outside, no doubt about it. We need to have that mission and evangelism occurring. But sometimes it seems that they need to constantly be renewed because they're dying out from the inside and their own people leave. Let that never be true of us here. And it's been great for me as I've been here worshipping amongst us, you, to see generations of family committed to the things of God. Let's continue to have that. That's the first layer, John. That's what the point is in the whole book of 1 Samuel. A second point is the fact that the New Testament tells us that these Old Testament things have been given to us for example, so that we understand faith and behaviour. Eli's sons, those people who were supposed to be operating as priests before the Lord, and we all are priests before God, 
fell in a number of areas. And we can use that and see that and look at that and say, what are the examples, what are the things that we learn from this about dangers that are possible within us? Or maybe dangers that we see amongst us and we have to guard against. The first thing it says about these people, and this is a part of why they were replaced, is that they would steal from God. All of this stuff about how they kind of harassed those who came to worship, it all kind of has bits and pieces which would just increase the depth of their depravity, but we're just going to touch on it briefly. When everybody came to worship according to the book of the law, different bits of the animal or whatever it was that they brought were to be given to different individuals. Some was to be given to God, some was to be given to the priest, some was to be taken and shared by those who came as an offering. And particularly if it was an animal offering and the sorts of offerings that were done here, it seems that as the animal was slaughtered, the fat in particular was to be burnt and given to God as, as an offering to him completely. Then the priest was to get his particular portion, the shoulder and the breast. He was to have that with his family to share amongst themselves. And the rest of the beast would be boiled up in a sort of stew that the people could eat. Those who'd come to worship. So that there was this idea that the first fruits of everything that was given went to God, the best bits. Now, we know it seems in this day that fat's bad for you, right? But let's face it, that's the tastiest bit, right? Not that you just want to cut the fat off, unless, of course, it's a pork loin or something like that. You just don't want to eat the straight fat. But you like having the fat through it because that kind of gives it that flavour. The best stuff went to God. It was cut off and given to God. And then what the priest had set aside was given to them. Usually they had to eat it within the temple precincts, which means usually it was boiled because the only fire in one sense that was supposed to be there to roast on was at the altar. The rest was some vats for people to make stews and to eat. So that those who had ministered before the Lord would get their portion. God provided for them. And then the rest... As we gave to God, we benefit and were blessed by that. The people who brought the offering, they would eat the rest. What it seems like Eli's sons did was they got their bit, that was fine. And then they came along afterwards when the people were kind of boiling their meat and kind of stuck a fork in and picked out a little bit of extra blessing for themselves. Um, you don't know whether it was a practice, and people are divided on this, whether it was the practice that everything was put in the pot instead of taking the bits that... God had said, this is what you're supposed to have. They figured, why leave it up to God? <laughs> I'm going to put my fork in and get what I like. I love being a father in a house. I get to carve the meat. I get to put on my plate what I want. It's cool. Now, fortunately for my children, I'm a loving father and they get the meat and I eat the bones. Not true, right? But it seems that possibly that was one of the things they were doing. But they went even further than that. They rocked up to the person just as the beast is sacrificed and said, look, before you, you hand over to God everything that belongs to him, um, just chop off a bit of that stuff with the fat on it because we want to roast that. We don't want boiled meat. We want to roast some for ourselves. And the people said, that's not right. God deserves his bit. 
your example before us is it's not good. And the priests were not just selfish. They were not just taking that which belonged to God. They were doing it with violence towards others. They said, look, if you don't give it to us, we'll smash you and then we'll take it. Is that any way for Christian folk to behave, followers of God, sons of God, priests before the Lord to behave? The answer is absolutely not, but that's what they were doing. We learn some things from this. What's that? Don't take that which belongs to God. No matter how much it seems like you deserve it, no matter how much it seems like it's something that's there for you, the application is for us as Christian folk to take that which God gives us and to give him thanks and honour and glory because he gives us that which he does. Understand that God will never be in anyone's debt. He is always going to give that which we need and not only that, he blesses us abundantly. And yet so many times as we come into situations, it seems in life that that which belongs to God, our money, our time, our energy, our devotion, our worship, gets sidelined by other things that we want, maybe even that we think we need. And don't think it was just Hophni and Phinehas who are at fault here, because as we read later on, Eli benefited from this at all. The Bible very rarely tells us about individual people's features. It doesn't say they had blue eyes and brown hair. It tells us a few things if necessary, like we know one of the prophets was bald because it comes up in the story. But it tells us something a little bit later about Eli, and it says he was, when it says big, it doesn't mean big man as in big boned. See, I like to think I'm big boned. It says this guy was fat. He was obese. He was partaking of everything that his sons were doing. He was a recipient of that. He was stealing also from God. And God says, I'm going to hold you accountable for that. Let's make sure we don't steal from God that which belongs to him. The further sin of these people comes a little bit later on when it talks of the fact that they would sleep with the women at the threshold of the temple. And there's bits of discussions what it was. It doesn't seem to me from the text, although some people think that they were raping people. I don't think that's what they were doing. I think more that they were being promiscuous either with women who came to the temple or more likely they had inculcated into their practice and worship the same things that were happening outside in the pagan philosophy and they had temple prostitutes in the same way that the other worshippers of other gods would do and Phineas and Hophni would avail themselves of that which was right within their eyesight. They had brought into the temple the practices of the rest of the world. And when you think about the fact that God says in the earlier book of the law that he will meet with his priests at the threshold of the temple and talk to them at that place, that here is where Hophni and Phinehas has to have these ladies operating. And at least one of them we know was married. So not only was there adultery going on as well as fornication, it was happening in the temple of God. What do we learn from this? One of the other things which God says is not to be amongst the sons of God is this bringing into not only his temple but for us into our lives those things which are the practices of those outside there to count as nothing the law of God 
which is what they were doing. We shouldn't behave like that. Now, we all know that, but I think sometimes we kind of have this feeling in our minds that the blood of Jesus Christ covers all things and therefore there's no consequences for this. God says, if you continue to act in that way, I'm going to remove your lampstand because I will raise up for myself a holy nation, a royal people, a people who belong to me who will declare my praises. He has done that in us. But if we forsake that, be aware he can very well remove us. It's a warning to us not to do that. Hophni and Phineas obviously heard the rebuke of their father. He says very clearly to them, don't you know that if you go against God, who's going to save you? I struggle sometimes that we hear the same message. We understand that there is no one who can save us from the hands of a wrathful God, except God himself. And yet we don't take seriously the very actions that we do which displease him and anger him. Sin is a terrible thing, even in its smallest amount. It alienates us from God. And I know and you know that we're covered by the blood of Christ. We're saved. But the danger in that is that we forget exactly what sin is. It's living as children of the devil when we should be living as children of God. Let's take that on board and apply it to our lives. And I give thanks that many of us live lives which are faithful and consistent as children of God, but never lose sight of the fact that we must maintain our integrity as living as children of light. The third thing, and probably in some ways the most difficult of the things that now comes, is a little bit more of a specific example that we have here. And that's the Christian families. I don't know of anything that I would hate more, and I, I mean the word hate actually, the thing that would tear my heart apart more if, as a Christian father than if someone said to me, David's sons were worthless sons, worthless men. They weren't followers of God. They were followers of the devil. They have no regard for the Lord. For me, as, as a Christian, as a father, I would weep. And I talk to parents in that very same situation. Where they've grown up and they love Christ. Now, Eli's not blameless. That's true, we'll see that in a moment from the story. He has done things which have pushed his kids in some way in the direction that they've headed. He has torn down the might and the glory of God in favour of his children. They have followed after him in that. So he has some blame. But I still feel from the whole of the story that Eli was a man who loved God. He knew God's voice. God spoke to him and proclaimed to him what God was going to do so that Eli, who understood and knew God, could change things. And yet Eli had this terrible knowledge that was fulfilled in prophecy later on. It says in this chapter itself that you will know the truth of what God is saying when you hear that your sons have died on the same day. What was the most horrific part of that? 
The most terrific part of that was knowing that when his sons died, they died as sons who did not know God. So it says in verse 12, they had no regard for God. That word regard is the word no. They did not know God. Same word that's used of Samuel. He did not yet know God. It's possible, if not all too frequent, for people to grow up within the Christian church, hear the blessing of the gospel, know the gospel message, and for one reason or another, turn aside from it. It's a terrible thing when that happens. But all too frequent. Not just Eli, Samuel's sons turned away, David's sons turned away, Aaron's sons turned away, some of Moses' sons turned away, Josiah's sons turned away. Hezekiah, the greatest, it seems, or one of the godliest kings, his son, Manasseh, was the most evil man. For 55 years he ruled and destroyed Judah. He came back to the Lord at the end of his life in his old age but he caused immense damage through all of his life. You read throughout the scriptures this constant barrage that even in godly families, kids turn away. And it's a horrific and a terrible thought. And I can see as I look out in the congregation, some people agree with me. What a terrible thing that that is, even from our own experience. I have family members of mine who have heard the gospel. I think of my aunts and uncles. I just met with my aunt this week, a lovely lady. Her father was an Anglican preacher. She heard the gospel for a whole life. She knows it. We talked about it this week over lunch. Rejects it out of hand. Someone who should be a child of God is a child of the devil. That's what the heading of this passage is. Sometimes I think we get this feeling that there's some in-between ground and there's not. Now, I want to be very careful here. I think it's, it's very clear in Scripture that we are not to judge why that happens unless the Scripture gives us a reason for it. I don't think we have any right as people to go up to other people and say, your kids have moved away from the Lord, you must have done something wrong. That's not what scripture, the point the scripture is trying to make here. Now, sometimes that's true. But let's be honest about it. We cannot be saved by the godliness of our parents. Neither can we be damned by their sin. The reaction that each person makes, each child makes, is theirs. We stand before God alone, based on what we have done. Yes, it's true that there are people who have grown up in families where the parents have said we're Christians and they've been complete hypocrites. And the child turns away because of what they say is what my parents are like. But understand that when they stand before God, the blame is theirs. They stand there before him. Every parent makes mistakes. I know I do. We're going to talk in a moment about some of Eli's faults. If that's true for you, the need is to turn to repent and to come back to God, ask his mercy and his blessing. And he promises to forgive. He promises to renew. He promises to restore your relationship with him. You can't take the blame 
for someone else's relationship with God. But let me also add to those of you who are in here and your parents have maybe turned you a bit against God and you have yet to face up to your need for a saviour, you don't get into heaven based on your, on your parents' relationship with God, either good or bad. You get in based on your relationship with God. You hear the gospel, it's up to you to respond. There are all sorts of influences on us. But if you've heard, don't blame anyone else, turn to him. But in this case, we are given some indication of where Eli's sons have gone wrong. So I think it's appropriate that we learn from that. They turned aside and it seems like they did it for a number of reasons. One of them seems to be that Eli was not an appropriately good father. Scripture is clear that fathers have an enormous responsibility for their children. Most likely, from what it seems, Eli was getting reports about his sons. He didn't have this close relationship with them. And we don't know what happened, John, but they were children, it seems, of his older age. So more likely than not, he was kind of an absentee dad. He had other important things to do. He wasn't there at all times to keep them on track, as he should have been. In fact, his rebuke of them doesn't force them into the right pathway. It doesn't mold them, he just tells them but then God comes and says to him you idolise your sons more than me all you're trying to do is to do the sorts of things that make them happy what about me says God I've given you a task to do, make me happy what should have Eli done as high priest was remove his sons from priesthood taken them aside brought them into line, he should have done that as a young age Now, just a quick note, it's not all Eli's fault. How do we know that? Hannah gave Samuel into Eli's care. Hophni and Phinehas, growing up in their father's care with their example that he had, they turned aside. Samuel, coming up, growing up in Eli's care with Eli as an example, became a man who knew God and followed him. So we can't always blame the parents, but it is instructive, and particularly to fathers. You got a job. I don't know how many times I talk with ladies who who want to have a discussion about the difficulties they're having in their home and they say, I don't know how to tell my husband. I just want him to do his Christian duty. I can look after my kids. I can teach them about Jesus. But if he did it, it would have an impact. How do I get my husband to do it? So, men. Do it is, I think, what we learn from this. It's ours. If you're, if you're a single mother and if you don't have a godly example from a father in the home and you have to do it, God blesses that. Do it. God's amazingly graceful. But if you're a Christian dad and you're in the home, step up. You can't be away all the time, getting enough money, having enough for retirement, having good holidays, putting enough entertainment in front of your children is no substitute for being the sort of dad who sets the boundaries for them and keeps them in the pathway of righteousness for his name's sake. God promises us that he will take care of our kids. But it's one of these covenants which is two ways. We've got to own up to our responsibility in that as well. That's a really 
tough part of this passage is this condemnation of Eli and his sons for this breaking of their family. A word of encouragement though, right at the end here. Turning back to God is a work of God in people's hearts. There's, there's nothing that's been done in the past that can't be changed in the future. There's nothing that's happened to people that God can't work in their lives to bring them not only to relationship with him but great wonderful usefulness in him. I'm reminded of Augustine. And you would have thought as Augustine, he's way back, all right? Augustine growing up, a licentious man, a man who went after every pleasure of the flesh. You would think, well, maybe there was something wrong with his family, but that just wasn't true. His mother, Monica, was one of the most godly women, and you you read what she had to say. She was a godly example for him at every time, and he turned his back completely on it. And yet she prayed faithfully for him day after day and week after week. And he headed off to Rome, and and she was distraught. If anything was going to destroy her son, it was Rome, the worst and most wickedest place that he could ever go. And yet it was in Rome that he met Ambrose of Milan, and Ambrose brought him to faith. And there was no, I don't think personally, greater in church history, one of the church fathers who had a greater impact on the church. If you want, in some ways, he's the father of the Reformation as Luther turned back to a lot of what Augustine had to say, which, back to what Paul had to say. God can do amazing things. If you're in the situation where you look back either at your life and you see the things that you've done in your family, whether it's in your children, your parents, your brothers and sisters, and they've gone astray, and you realise maybe I've done the wrong thing, I've been a hypocrite, I haven't lived before them as I should, repent. Turn back to God, seek to have him as your first love and go on in the pathway that he wants you to live. He promises to give you full forgiveness under the blood of Christ Jesus, give you full peace and restore you. You can't change the past, but by the blood of Christ can cover many of those things, all of those things in you. But for the future, seek not only to live before them that lifestyle, but I suggest the one who can change their heart is God himself. I'm amazed that sometimes people who come and say to me, look, I've got this member of my family, and I just wish they would come to the Lord. Wishes don't do nothing. That's a double negative, which is very bad. I'm sorry. Wishes do nothing. God is the one who makes a change in people's hearts. Get on your knees and pray. Fast and pray if you must. George Mueller prayed for some of his family for 60 years, his good close friends, before they came to know Christ. Are we burdened? Do we weep for this family of ours who, who knows the Lord here, but don't know the Lord here in their experience. Pray for them. One of the things I'm seeking to do this year is just once a month to have a meeting on a Sunday afternoon to give people an opportunity to come and to pray corporately for their loved ones, their family. It was in the, it was in the, book, in the bulletin last week and it's this afternoon, 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock. 
Come and spend a couple of hours praying for those that you love who don't know Jesus. Do it on your own for certain, but sometimes coming together is just that encouragement for us. A difficult passage. Those who are the sons of God behaving as sons of the devil. What do we learn from that? God will not put up with that for long. He makes changes. Let us make certain that corporately we live according to his way and his will as children of God. Individually, let's make sure that we as Christian people, servants of God, live before him honourable lives because in the case of Eli and Hophni, sorry, Hophni and Phineas, their living before the world, before the people, turned people away and they despised the offering of God. Let's make sure that our lives are not like that. Not live selfishly, not live secularly, not live sexually immorally, but live upright lives that people might know that we worship God in truth and honesty. And then in our families, particularly fathers, but parents, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, grandparents, live before our families in such a way as to point them honourably and honestly within according to our responsibilities to the one who can save. Understand that if we are individually responsible before God. We're not saved by our parents, neither are we condemned by them, but only our own sin. And if any of us have people in our families, friends that we love who don't know the Lord, he's the one who can change them and the only one who can bring them to himself. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples from the Old Testament that show us what has happened amongst your people. Father, I pray that you might help us as a church to learn from this. Firstly, I pray that corporately you might help us to truly be in this place and amongst these people and in this community a light, a light that doesn't bring you dishonour but a light that attracts people to yourself because of our love one for another and our integrity according to your word. Father, I pray that you might help each of us individually to have that same integrity and love that we won't allow our desires, we won't allow the pressures from outside, we won't allow our carnality to take your place in the way that we live. And Father, I pray for our families. I pray that by your grace you might help them to overlook our sin, our hypocrisy, our waywardness, Help them by your grace to see our love for you, our devotion to you, our love one for another. Help them by your grace to hear the message of the gospel. Bring people across their path who will share it in a way that they understand and break through the barriers of their heart that none of us might ever think that our family are damned eternally. We thank you for your grace in these matters. Thank you for your all-powerful spirit who works in this world to share the message of Christ, your ever-worthy Son.
We ask these things in his name. Amen.